Hi, everyone. This is Alicia Halliday, and this is the Autism Science Foundation Weekly Science Podcast. On this week's podcast, we want to ask the question, how well can genetics predict an autism diagnosis? And also, what are those little blebs in the autism brain, and why are they there? First, let's start off with some hot news this week. The findings from the genetics of siblings of kids with autism and how they might be predictive of autism. A research collaboration from the Baby Siblings Research Consortium with Canadian geneticists looked at 288 younger siblings of kids with autism spectrum disorder. As you probably already know, there is a 15 times elevated probability that those younger siblings will also have a diagnosis. But almost as important as that diagnosis, about 40% of those without the diagnosis show some sort of atypical neurodevelopment. Now, this atypical neurodevelopment is a constellation of symptoms. Not autism as per se, but kind of in the same realm. Developmental delays, language issues, behavior problems, sometimes ADHD, and externalizing behaviors like aggression. The scientists found that about 7% of siblings who developed autism or atypical development had copy number variations that were in autism-relevant genes or considered relevant to autism. In other words, they might not have been the same exact mutation in their siblings affected with autism, but they were relevant for autism. Sometimes they were shared with the autism sibling and sometimes they weren't. This study is particularly important because it wasn't just an autism or no autism diagnosis. It was within families and it was a range of documented and standard diagnoses across the spectrum, not just a yes or no, from expert clinicians. What they were looking at were rare copy number variants, but they also found evidence that common variants, which are groups of genes rather than single genes, were elevated in the siblings. They used what is known as a polygenic risk score, poly meaning multiple and genetic meaning gene. So this is basically a genetic score made on the type of genes present and whether or not they're relevant for autism. And in some cases, if you're looking at multiple sclerosis or cancer, multiple sclerosis or cancer specific. So there's not one gene like a copy number variation. There are multiple genes. That's why they get the score. So why is this important? I agree that 7% is not a huge number, and I'll give you that. But based on all the different influences in an autism diagnosis, does that really surprise you? And it doesn't necessarily need to be huge. Some people may be looking at that number and saying, why bother? That's 7%. But let me tell you what happens if you have a child with autism and that child gets a genetic diagnosis. This is what families go through whose children do have a rare genetic mutation or known genetic cause of autism have told me. First, they can join a patient advocacy group and work together with other families who are in the same situation. Second, they get a sense of explanation on what is going on with themselves or their child. And third, they better understand what they can expect and what the future holds for them because they have a known genetic pathway where they can build upon. Now, it's not 100% yes, I want a genetic diagnosis or if you don't get a genetic diagnosis, it's a complete bomb. So I do understand that, but for that 7%, this can offer some real answers.
Also, families who have an older child affected with autism have the opportunity to get tested genetically and receive even more evidence that is either supportive of an autism diagnosis or not supportive, and this may mean getting into early intervention sooner. There is less ambiguity over the, quote, let's wait and see recommendation. Now, this study does not apply to infants without an older sibling who has autism, and frankly, parents should not take a wait-and-see approach anyway if they have one child with an autism diagnosis. They should pass go, collect their $200, and get straight to evaluations early and keep their eyes out and ears open for any opportunity to get early intervention. Guess what? These early intervention things end up being beneficial for everyone. I wish my daughter without autism had gotten some of these things. I think everyone should be in support of early speech, motor, and emotional development. Therapy for everyone. But this does not mean that everyone with autism has known genetic mutations or mutations that are thought to be autism-related. Because there are genes expressed in siblings that don't go on to receive an autism diagnosis yet go on to get a diagnosis of atypical development or something like that, Not only is it a constellation of symptoms, it's a constellation of genetic factors. Genes that may lead to autism or other things are on an autism continuum. This is something that's showing up in science over and over again. Their autism genes work on fundamental aspects of cell development that affect outcomes in language, social, attentional, and behavioral domains that could manifest itself as an autism diagnosis or not something that's autism, but part of the spectrum. Now, speaking of genetics, 20 years ago, the immune activation seen in the brain was thought to be caused by an external factor, like some sort of injury or an environmental exposure. There was evidence of microglial activation in the brains of people with autism, and because so little was known about genetics 20 years ago, it was assumed that this was something coming in and injuring the brain. Now, that could still be the case, but more science and genetics have shown that microglia, which is part of the brain's immune response, could in fact be triggered by genetic signals associated with autism. This new evidence comes from brain tissue of people with autism. And it's also important because the immune system, the role of the immune system, and even therapies that target the immune system have been hotly debated for years. It would be nice to be able to say that the immune system is a system that helps integrate genetic and environmental factors associated with autism and even understand what goes on in the brains of people with autism and why some people have alterations of immune markers all over the place, not just in the brain. So Dr. Matt Anderson from Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston, a node of the Autism Brain Net, explains what he thinks might be causing this dysregulation of the immune system in autism. He talks first about the genetic findings in brains of people with autism, and he points to immune genes which reflect hyperactivation of the immune system. The Geshwin group at UCLA and the Arking group at Hopkins uh, both came to the same conclusion using these approaches that there is an activation of the innate immune system. Uh, those are the cells that are local to the brain, such as the microglia and the astroglia, are activated and responding to some pathologic process. So this week, Matt Anderson's lab released more evidence from brain tissue that shows markers of immune activation, which could be very harmful to cell function. These brain features have a very scientific name. They're called blebs. 
You heard that right, B-L-E-B-S, like blobs with an E. And that's exactly what we're talking about. The accumulation of fluid and other immune particles in the brain leading to the membrane of the cells forming little discs, blisters, or blebs. These blebs may, well, probably affect how those cells function. Led by Dr. Matt Anderson, who is a neuropathologist and sees the tissue that comes through the autism brain net, started to notice something in the tissue he was seeing and decided to follow up. Here's how he initially discovered the findings, almost like a fluke, which led him to really develop a larger scale study. So in the process of signing out autism cases, one of the earliest cases I got, which was a patient that had an unusual cytogenetic abnormality of an extra male Y chromosome, it's called XYY, Well, that case had lymphocytes cuffing around the blood vessels uh, in rare foci. So this was only of the 14 blocks that I routinely take from different brain regions. It was only seen in a a few spots. So these are rare, but having seen so many brains previously, I knew that this was very unusual. When he collected and studied 25 cases of autism and 30 without autism, he found that in most or 60% of the cases, as compared to those without autism, the brains of those individuals showed an accumulation of white blood cells called lymphocytes. They attacked astrocytes and led to little blebs on the cell membrane. And the lymphocytes are attacking the brain at the blood-brain barrier, which is the barrier that protects what happens in the body from the brain. Traditionally, what happens in the body stays in the body and doesn't go into the brain thanks to this blood-brain barrier. This blood-brain barrier kind of protects this precious organ. They saw this finding in idiopathic autism in some with those with a known genetic cause, but they didn't see it in those with DUP15Q syndrome. I'd wait to read into anything about that until this study is replicated, but it is an interesting finding. The accumulations of these lymphocytes, or T lymphocytes, had high levels of CD8. Their main function in the body normally is to defend the body against foreign substances like bacteria, virus, and cancer cells that can threaten its functioning. But they normally don't appear as blisters, blebs, or astrocytes, and their accumulation is not a good thing. These T lymphocytes were in places in the cell they were not supposed to be. The blebs are actually like blisters. And using standard neuropathology techniques, it was found that the blebs damaged the cells and were actually considered cytotoxic or damaging to the cell walls of the brain. The type of blebs, astrocyte blebs, found in the autism brain are somewhat rare, not really in other CNS disorders other than multiple sclerosis. And scientists found that it revealed a cellular pathology of brain damage. There was also debris from the astrocytes in the cerebrospinal fluid, which is where the blood and the rest of the body interact. Now, here's what Dr. Anderson saw outside the vessels in the cerebrospinal fluid space. The other thing that puzzled me when I was looking at these cases was just outside of these blood vessels that had lymphocyte cuffs is uh, the cerebrospinal fluid that is continuous with the surface of the brain. It follows the blood vessels down. In that cerebral spinal fluid space, there were these little round bubbles of various sizes. And I'd never seen that before in other uh, brain disorders. I've looked at hundreds and hundreds of different 
conditions. Well, what does all of this mean? Well, I asked Dr. Anderson, the lead author on the paper, and he says... This is important because the adaptive immune system, which T lymphocytes are a part of, the other cell type being the B cell, which were very limited in number in autism. There were some in perivascular spaces, but far fewer than the T lymphocyte. Well, this adaptive immune cell actually has a T cell receptor that recognizes specific targets. So it's actually not just randomly attacking astrocytes, but it's attacking a very specific target on the astrocyte, and we think it's, it's a target that's specifically localized to that blood CSF brain barrier. I was curious to know if the number of lymphocytes correlated with different symptoms or were seen in any particular brain region. So I asked him, was it too many lymphocytes or in some particular areas? And has he seen this sort of thing before? He explained. One question I'm sometimes asked is whether the lymphocytes, the distribution of the lymphocytes correlates in any way with the behavioral symptoms found in autism. And so far, the lymphocyte collections were random in multiple different brain regions in these small little foci. It's a bit more analogous to a disease like polymyositis, an autoimmune T lymphocyte attack of the skeletal muscle myocyte, in that the overall muscle is weak, but there's very small microscopic infiltrates of lymphocytes with very focal attack of the myocyte. And what people think in that condition is that it's just the inflammatory state triggered by these lymphocytes that acts on the muscle throughout the muscle to cause weakness rather than the direct attack itself producing weakness. So at least in the way I think about this, it, it seems as though the symptoms are likely due to the inflammatory mediators rather than the direct effects of the lymphocytes. So no, not one brain region is affected more or less. This particular pathology does not correlate to particular behaviors. It seems to be the inflammatory state in general that's important. Dr. Anderson stated the next step is to better understand what these T lymphocytes on astrocytes actually do, and also to look for these specific immune markers in blood. So what should parents do? Like you guys always are, I know everyone is on top of everything, but be aware of some of the symptoms of immune overactivation, not just in the brain, but in the body you or your family members see. There could be co-occurring immune dysfunction. Sometimes things can be done about it, sometimes it can't. If autism touches the fingers, so to speak, of autoimmune disorders, as many thinks it does, there may be things that could be done. It's also important to be aware of the symptoms of immune dysfunction, including allergies. And there are some that believe that the immune system is what brings together, as I mentioned earlier, the genetic and environmental causes of autism and could also bring together symptoms of comorbid features like psychiatric issues and GI issues. Whether the immune system is part of the core biological features in autism still needs to be resolved, but there is plenty of biological evidence that it's critical for people with autism, both in the brain and in the rest of the body. Thank you for listening and talk to you next week.